What is your vision of God? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.P. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Today, Pastor Charles will take us through a view of God in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll learn that God is sovereign, that God is holy, and that God is gracious. Today's message, A High View of God. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. I did not learn the Bible initially through doctrinal categories. I initially learned the Bible through biblical stories. And the stories of the Bible are a great entryway into learning the Bible. There are stories in the Bible that every believer ought to know. Isaiah 6 is one of the great stories of the Bible that every Christian ought to know. Let me begin reading that story to you from Isaiah 6, chapter, the first verse in the English Standard Version. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Amen. You may be seated. I want to label the message a high view of God. A high view of God. Isaiah 6 records Isaiah's life transforming vision of God and subsequent call to prophetic ministry. It is arguably 
the most well-known passage in the prophecy of Isaiah. And rightfully so. Isaiah 6 records the dramatic testimony of a sinful man who had a violent encounter with the holiness of God, but lived to tell about it. Isaiah's gaze was lifted above and beyond his physical surroundings wherever he was. He received a vision of the sovereign holiness of God that changed his life immediately, completely, and permanently. God the Holy Spirit then moved the prophet Isaiah to leave on record in Scripture this encounter in order to call you and me to a higher view of God. No, I will not suggest that you or, or, or I need to run about seeking to match the supernatural experience Isaiah had. But may the Lord give each of us the resulting reverence for God that Isaiah had as a result of this experience. A.W. Tozer once wrote that the most urgent need of the moment is for lighthearted, superficial religious people to be struck with a vision of God high and lifted up sitting on his throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. That is, we all desperately need a higher view of God. In the supremacy of God in preaching, John Piper writes about using Isaiah 6 as a pastoral experiment on the first Sunday of one year. He preached the text, exalting the perfections, the attributes, the greatness of God in the text, and intentionally left out any word of application for the hearer. The experiment was this. He wanted to see if if simply the proclamation of the greatness of God in and of itself would be enough to meet the needs of his people. A few weeks later, he discovered that in that service, was a couple who had recently discovered that their child had been molested by a family member. Pulling Piper aside one Sunday, the father shared the sordid details of the story and added, do you know what has helped us get through this ordeal? It was the vision of the holiness of God that you preached about at the beginning of the year. He added, it has been a rock upon which we have been able to stand. I pray that that will be your testimony as a result of encountering God in Isaiah 6. I don't know if I'll get to everything in this great story that I want to say, so let me just State the point of the message right up front, and it is this. Your view of God is everything. Did you hear me? Your view of God 
is everything. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, for I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, for in these I delight, says the Lord. I repeat, a proper view of God is not just important, it's everything. If you don't have a right view of God, whatever else you may have, you don't have anything. But when you see God as he truly is, everything else will fit into its proper place. What is your view of God? Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 teaches us what it means to have a high view of God. There are three attributes of God that are essential to a high view of God here in the text. Let me walk you through them as quickly as I can. Here's the first. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We cannot see God with the naked eye. The Bible is clear about this. John 4, verse 24 says, God is spirit. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen nor can see. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 just bluntly says, no one has ever seen God. But in Isaiah 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. What did Isaiah see? There is an indication of what Isaiah saw by the title he ascribes to God in verse 1. He says, I saw the Lord. I need you to pay close attention to your Bible with me for just a moment. Note that God is called the Lord in verse 1 by Isaiah. And in verse 3, Isaiah quotes the song of the angelic seraphim that says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is called Lord in verse 1 and Lord in verse 3. But notice a subtle difference in your text. In verse 1, Lord is spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. But in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord is capital L and small capitals O-R-D. Do you see that? This is a hint from the English translator that there are two different Hebrew words being used here. In verse 3, Lord in all capitals, and anywhere in the Old Testament where you see Lord in all capitals, it translates the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh was the ineffable name that they could not pronounce. They added vowels to it and started pronouncing it Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah 
is the personal name of God. It means the self-existent one. It is the name with which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses wants to know God's name, God tells him, I am that I am. But in verse 1, Lord, capital L, small, small case O-R-D, translates the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai. This is a title that speaks of sovereign power, the omnipotence and authority of God. Yahweh is the self-existent one. Adonai is the sovereign one. Note here that Isaiah does not say he saw Yahweh, the essential nature of the living God. No one can see that. But he said, I did see Adonai. I saw a vision, a manifestation a display of the greatness and authority of Almighty God. This is further indicated in verse 1 that he says, I saw the Lord, and important here is where he was when I saw him. He was sitting on his throne. And note, that in verse 5, the bottom of verse 5, he just bluntly says, my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah here receives a vision of the sovereign authority of God. Well, since we've swum out this deep, let me go a little further if I may. John chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, quotes Isaiah 6 and 10. The rejection of the ministry of Jesus is seen to be a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 and 10. And then in comment, John 12 verse 41 declares that Isaiah said these things when he beheld his glory. John says what Isaiah actually saw was what scholars call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Or if I could put that in layman's terms, he saw a sneak preview of coming attractions. Before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem's barn, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne in heaven, the uncreated reigning over all creation. And this is what sovereignty means. To say God is sovereign is to say he's in charge of everything. And his sovereignty is put on display several ways here. God is sovereign because God is eternal. You want to be in charge? Here's the, here's the qualification. You can't have a beginning and you can't have an end. <laughs> Psalm 90 verse 3, Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
In the text, we see this eternality of God emphasized in the time reference. In the year the king Uzziah died. Uzziah was the ninth king of Judah. He took the throne at the age of 16. He reigned for 52 years. Second Chronicles 26 tells us because he was marvelously helped by God, he led Judah to military, political, and economic success. But when he became strong, he became proud. He violated God's holiness and disobeyed God's command by intruding onto the ministry of the priesthood, and God struck him with leprosy. And this mighty king died isolated from the kingdom that he built. Isaiah says, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Let me try it another way. In the year when earth's throne became vacant, heaven's throne was still occupied. This is why, as Christians, we must never panic about the rise and fall of political leaders. Inevitably, there is coming a day when every office holder in the world will be forced, if by no other means than by death, to abdicate their office. But while kings and dictators and prime ministers move off the scene, God is where he's always been, sitting on his throne, reigning over heaven and earth. God is eternal. God is sovereign because God is eternal. But not only is God sovereign because he is eternal, God is sovereign because he is transcendent. It's another preacher term. This simply means God is above us and beyond us. This is not verse 1. Isaiah says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And where was this throne? It was high and lifted up. So Isaiah says, when human kings abdicate their throne, God will still be on the throne. But even as humans occupy their thrones, no human throne is on the level of God. God's throne. He is high and lifted up. Philip, Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Be still simply means quit striving. In other words, don't be a fool and try to fight against God. Because in the end, God will be exalted over the nations of the earth. In fact, it's already so. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 declares, Therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is sovereign because God is eternal. God is sovereign because God is transcendent. And then God is sovereign because God is majestic. Still in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of a robe, of course, is, you know, the long, extra flowing material behind the robe. Human kings would put their greatness on display by the length of their train. But Isaiah says, while human kings compete for greatness, God is so great that when he shows up, it ain't room for nothing else. The train of his robe fills the temple. We're more familiar with this term train as it is used here when it comes to weddings. The bride comes down the aisle in her beautiful dress with the train following behind it. What's the longest bridal train you've ever seen? However glorious, you've never seen a bride's dress with a train so long that when the ushers finished getting it all in the room, it covered all the pews and the people and every empty space. But Isaiah says, God is so great. That, that when, when he shows up, his trailing glory filled the whole temple. There's another way to look at this quickly. In Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 22. Jeremiah verse 22 of chapter 13 God is warning about coming judgment on rebellious people. And he says this, if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted and you suffer violence. God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you two ways. I'm going to make you suffer violence. But listen to what else he says. I'm going to lift up your skirt. In the ancient world, everyone wore robes, men and women, and many still do in the Middle East countries. But in that culture, it was a sign of shame for a man to let his legs show. And God says, you think you're so great? I'm going to pull up your skirt and show your legs 
so that everybody will see you nothing but a man. But while God pulls up the skirts of man to show how weak we are, when he shows up, the train of his robe fills the temple. God is sovereign. Am I at least making sense? Secondly, God is holy. God is holy. Holiness may be the most neglected attribute of God in the contemporary church. If you ask a typical Christian what God is like, we would be prone, many of us, to list a whole lot of attributes before we get to the holiness of God. He's good, and he's kind, and he's merciful, and he's gracious. We like mercy and grace because they benefit us. But in Scripture, the defining attribute of God is holiness. Holiness has two meanings. It means, first of all, God is holy other, totally separate, absolutely unique. God is not like us. And secondly, holiness means he's, he's morally perfect. There is no sin, no spot, no blemish in God. This is the defining attribute of God. The, the word used to describe God far more than any other word in the Bible is holy. In fact, God is so holy that as you read Scripture, it's as if His holiness is contagious. Anything associated with God becomes holy. So you'll read in your Bible and you'll see that God's name is holy and His ways are holy and His deeds are holy. And his law is holy, and his word is holy, and his promises are holy, and his temple is holy, and his people is holy. If, you, if you're going to get near God, you got to be holy. Throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. It is because of this encounter with God. You cannot know God without holiness, but to say that God is holy is to say God is God. That's why holiness is hard to define. To define holiness is like defining God. No one can do it. But to know God, you must understand holiness. And in this vision, the holiness of God is not defined formally for us. It is dramatically described. First, stay with me. We see the holiness of God displayed in the posture of the seraphim. In the posture of the seraphim. Verse 3, verse 2 says, above him stood the seraphim. What are seraphim? The Hebrew word means burning ones. Seraphim are literally burning ones. Every other place the Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to fiery serpents. But only here, the term is used to refer to some special order of angelic beings. These seraphim are angels. These angels have certain things in common with us. Verse 2 says later that they have faces and they have feet. 
Verse 6 says they have hands. They are similar to us, but at the same time, they are not similar to us. They are not like us, A, in the name given to them, seraphim, burning ones. Isaiah looks up above the throne and says, it's people up there, but it can't be people because they're on fire. And not only are they different because they are burning creatures, they are different than us in that verse 2 says they have wings. Six wings. Six wings with which they do two things. The last phrase says that with two of their wings they flew. Verse 1 says God's throne is high and lifted up. And in an interesting language here, verse 2 begins by saying, above him stood the seraphim. Isaiah is not suggesting that these seraphim are greater than God. I think this is a picture of the role of the seraphim. They are standing, that is, hovering with their wings above the throne of God to protect God's throne from sinful intrusion. Let me try it another way. The seraphim are God's supernatural secret service agents who stand above his throne to make sure his holy throne is not violated by the presence of sinful people. All right. But we have four wings left. If with two wings they are flying, what are they doing with these other four? This is interesting because with two wings, they are guarding the throne of God from the presence of others. But with four of the six wings, they are guarding themselves from the presence of God. With two wings, they covered their faces. God's holiness is so great. His separation from mankind so infinite his moral perfection so brilliant that the angels couldn't bear to look directly at God or have God look directly at them. So they covered their faces. But why did they cover their feet? I got an idea. I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. So I need y'all to play along with me for just a minute. I think the explanation for Isaiah 6 is found in Exodus 3, where Moses is taking his flock for a walk in the desert, and he sees in the distance a bush burning that won't burn up. He had seen many bushes burn, but they are quickly consumed under the hot Palestinian sun in the Negev. But here was a dried bush that had nothing to feed it, but it kept on burning. He needed to get a closer look, but as he approached, Exodus 3 verse 5 says that a voice spoke from the bush. 
I wish y'all was enjoying this as much as I am. A voice spoke from the bush and said, do not come any further. Take the sandals from off of your feet, for the ground where you stand is holy ground. If, if the desert sand is holy ground when God is present, how much more is the holy throne of God holy ground? The angels did not have sandals to take off, but they did have wings. And with two wings, they covered their faces, and two wings, they covered their feet in the presence of God. Look at verse 5. Isaiah, in this vision, says, woe is me. I'll get to that in a minute, but just let, let me note for you, this is the proper response of sinful people to a holy God. But why are the angels fearful? The angels are innocent. They don't have no sin. They're pure. But this is just how holy God is. It is not just that God is separate from sin. He is separated from all creation. So much so that even the holy angels that guard his throne must guard themselves lest they be consumed by the holiness of God. And so the holiness of God is declared by the posture of the seraphim, but the holiness of God is also declared by the praise of the seraphim. So, H.B., your argument is that the seraphim guard the throne of God. How do they throne, guard that throne? It is not with fire, even though they are burning ones. They don't guard the throne with their wings as weapons. I suggest that they guard the throne of God with antiphonal chants of praise. Verse 3 says one call to another. I want you to picture that. And Isaiah looks up and says, an angel over here shouts to an angel over there who shouts back to an angel over here who shouts to an angel over there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Many read this holy, holy, holy and view it as a reference to the Trinity. The Bible teaches that God is one essence and three persons. One God who is co-equally, co-essentially, and co-eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, the term Trinity is not in the Bible. The truth of the Trinity, however, is all over the Scriptures. Well, how could God be one and three at the same time? Listen, try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. This is what makes God God. He's beyond our comprehension. But I'm going to just be like Robert G. Lee, who declared, I don't understand electricity, but I ain't going to sit in the dark until I do. And so it is proper that many view this as a reference to the Trinity, but 
that's not what's going on here primarily here. You have Old Testament Hebrew language making emphasis in, in the Old Testament and in the New. Repetition is used for emphasis. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus is trying to get somebody's attention, he says their name twice, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon. He doesn't, the angels don't just hear say, holy, holy. They say, holy, holy, holy. To call God holy once is enough. To call God holy twice is emphatic. To call God holy three times is superlative. The angels are saying God is so holy that our minds can't fully comprehend it and our words can't fully express it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Look at the next phrase. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. You ask me, the earth is full of crime, poverty, racism, hatred, abuse, injustice, war, terrorism. But the angels don't define the earth by the evening news. They define reality by the holiness of God. And inasmuch as this holy God is on the throne and will have the last word, they declare it before they see it. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see how a high view of God changes everything? When you see God as he really is, you can see glory everywhere. And note this about worship. You can't praise the glory of God if you don't embrace the holiness of God. There is no glory without holiness. God is holy. One more idea, though. You may be tired of this sermon. And so I just wish you would quit this sermon. But you don't want me to quit the sermon here. Because sovereignty and holiness by themselves are bad news. You see, God is holy and we are not. And one day we're going to have to answer to that God. And the fact that he's sovereign means ain't no getting out of that day. If I could say it that way. There's no getting around God. You can't escape him. You're going to have to answer to God. You need this third point. The God who is sovereign and holy is also thirdly gracious. Y'all don't even know when to shout on the sermon. (laughs) This God who is sovereign and holy is also gracious. Years ago, there was a uh, conference on comparative religions, and in that conference, they were discussing what sets Christianity apart from other world religions. 
Is it incarnation, God becoming man? Is it crucifixion, atonement being made for sin, the innocent dying for the guilty? Is it resurrection, the dead living again? They concluded that wasn't the answer, and as they debated, it is said C.S. Lewis wandered into the meeting late and asked what the proceedings were about. They told him, a question on the floor, he says, oh, that's easy. The thing that separates Christianity from all the religions of the world is grace. The doctrine of grace, and he's right. Listen to me, church. Every other religion of the world, every major world religion, you name it, is one way or another trying to teach man how to reach up to God. If you obey this, if you avoid that, if you don't eat this, if you take a trip there, one way or another is trying to show people what to do to reach God. Christianity begins, the first principle of Christianity is this, that we are guilty sinners who can never reach God's righteous standard. But here's the good news. Though we cannot reach up to God, God has reached down to us. By the righteous life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says it this way. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. God is gracious. And we see that in the story as the heavenly furniture shifts. In verses 1 through 4, the focus is on the throne. In verses 5 through 8, the focus is on the altar. Thank God the furniture shifts. We would be doomed if there was a throne without an altar, holiness without grace, guilt without forgiveness. Y'all ain't listening to me here. Our only hope of salvation is that the God of sovereign holiness is also a God of amazing grace. We see God's grace in Isaiah's contrition. Verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the whole house was filled with smoke. You talking about a powerful choir. Here's a powerful choir. As they sing about the holiness of God, the building is shaking at its foundation. It's dangerous for Isaiah to move. And if he did try to move, he wouldn't know where to go because the house gets dark as it fills up with smoke. Y'all better be careful. We're singing all these contemporary songs. Lord, I want to see you. And Isaiah said, well, you better rethink that thing. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When I saw the Lord, I would, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a blessing. I was trapped. By the holiness of God. Isaiah, in this moment, 
might have been closer to God than any other human being since Adam and Eve before the fall. And yet because of his sin, he was so far away. He is trapped. He is doomed. He is in the dark and he cries out, woe is me. Repeatedly in chapter 5, you just read chapter 5, repeatedly, repeatedly, he, he keeps saying, woe unto the people, woe to those, woe to those. And, and then God places this story of Isaiah's call to ministry here logically rather than chronologically. Because while all of these woes of judgment are declared on the people, Isaiah the preacher wants to say, let me tell y'all something, before I showed up and declared judgment on you. I saw the Lord for myself and declared woe on me. Woe unto me, for I am lost. That's not a strong enough translation. I'm ruined. Cut off. Undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. He's not saying, you know, you know, I got to cuss every now and then. This is something deeper. He is saying, I have seen God in his glory. Listen to me. And God's glory demands worship. The angels in his presence worship his glory, singing of his holiness. But they are able to do that because they are innocent. Woe to me because I'm in God's presence that demands worship and I can't offer it because unclean lips can't give true praise. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't sing holy, holy, holy. I can only sing, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. You know, he's not just, um, he's not doing, you know, what my kids do, your kids do, try to drag their siblings into the punishment. You know, I did it, but they did it too. <laughs> That's not the spirit of this here. No, he is not, he is not belittling others. He is humbling himself. Listen to me, church. You have not seen God as he truly is until you get to a place where you can confess in your own life, I am no better than everybody else. When you can come to God with rationalizations and justifications and comparisons and excuses, it means you haven't really seen God. To see God is to see I'm no better than anyone else around me. We go around, oh, well, I, I would never do what they did. Well, the only reason I did this is because they did that to me. Listen, not, not 
none of that matters with God. I'm your pastor. And if you could go to God and prove to God that you are morally better than your pastor, so what? I'm not the standard. What have you done if you find anyone can find somebody shorter than you are and say, look how tall I am. Success. I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah thinks he is about to die. Isaiah's not what we see happening these days. Where? Isaiah's not what we see these days where people have a visit a vision of heaven, and then they come back from heaven and write a book and get a movie deal and become famous. In the Bible, when you see God, that's it. And Isaiah thinks that's it. He has seen the Lord, and he thinks this is it. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. And this is throughout the Scriptures. When, when sinful man sees a holy God, he's doomed to death. Isaiah thinks he is about to die, but he doesn't. And this is the point. The fact that God is gracious is seen in the fact that all of us should have been dead and gone. But God spared us. Not only did God spare him, God forgave him. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. God not only spared his life, but God forgave his sin. You want to know what grace is? Grace is... We should have been dead and gone. But God spared our life. And not only did he spare our lives, not only did he spare us, he forgave us. He forgave us by atonement. And atonement means that the innocent dies in the place of the guilty. That's what happened at Calvary. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are 
healed. Thank God for his grace. How should you respond to a God like this? Verse 8, quickly, and I'm going to let you go. How should you respond to a God like this? In the previous verses, God turns on heaven's big screen and allows Isaiah to see a vision of glory. But in verse 8, God turns up heaven's loudspeakers and allows Isaiah to overhear a divine conversation. Isaiah is wiping his, caring for his burning lips when he hears a voice from heaven say, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? For the record, nobody was talking to Isaiah. He is, if you will, butting in to grown folks' conversation. But he knew two things. He should have been dead but God spared his life. The angel should have come to wipe him out, but the angel came to clear his sin. And after all that God had done for him, listen to Isaiah say to God, Lord, I know I'm not in that conversation. You may not be talking to me, but I think you're talking about me. And Lord, if you need someone, here I am. Send me. Let me tell you what blows me away about this. He said, send me before the Lord ever said, where the mission was going to lead him. Many of us wouldn't signed up for that. We want the Lord to use us, but Lord, now how long this going to take and how much this going to cost and who I got to deal with? Isaiah says, all I know is I'm alive when I should have been dead and I'm forgiven when I should have been judged. It doesn't matter what the assignment is. Lord, if you need someone, here am I. Send me. When I was a boy, Deacon Max Smith, who was the leader of the prayer band, as they called it, would sing, use me, Lord, in thy service. I can hear him singing it now. Draw me nearer every day. Lord, I'm willing to run all the way. And if I stumble while I'm trying, don't be angry. Just help me stay. Lord, I'm willing to run on all the way. God be praised for his word. 
Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight and God bless.